from the premise that Paul spells out to these Philippians that when we understand who we are in Christ, and when we understand that, that we are to abide in Him and He in us, that is the only way that we will find true and lasting joy. Last time we were together in the book of Philippians, three weeks ago, we saw a description of someone who lived a life that was worthy of the gospel. In fact, that's what a majority of this book has been about up to this point was based on the premise from chapter 1, verse 27. We are to live lives that have the same weight of the gospel that we say we believe. And he gave us a description of someone named Timothy who was a, a person who lived his life in a way that it was worthy of the gospel with which he preached. Well, Paul was in prison at this time. We don't know whether it was Rome or Caesarea, but he was in prison, and he had to get a message back to the Philippians. And he had to have someone that was going to go there and to care deeply about him. And so he's not just going to send some random slouch to minister to these people because he loves these people. We've seen that throughout this book. He talks about them as his beloved. And so he chose Timothy. Timothy, a spiritual son who had a same soul as him, he says. A person that had proven himself and his love for God and his love for people and his love for the church. And now what we're going to find is that he gives another recommendation. It's not as if he says, well, Timothy is the only one. No, there are others that God has worked on and has, and has brought from death to life and is sanctifying in a way that they can be trusted. And one of those people is Epaphroditus, Epaphroditus. And so Paul starts to explain why Epaphroditus should be honored as well. He sets forth this other example of someone who's living a life worthy of the gospel. And in particular, someone that's living a life that's worthy of the gospel, not in ideal circumstances, but instead someone that is trusting in the Lord as best as he can in the midst of great trial. And we'll see that trial specified for us as sickness. Someone who has found himself with great physical ailment that still trusts in the Lord and gives his all for the Lord regardless of what comes his way. We're going to consider all that, but before we're done, we're even going to take a moment to talk about physical healing and what that looks like in the church and what it doesn't look like. Because all around us, we have a false doctrine in our day of this prosperity message, health, wealth, and prosperity is yours in Christ. And we're going to look at that and see why that is a lie for just a moment. But before we get into all that, let's pray. And ask that the Lord would help us as we look at his word. Father, we come to you this morning knowing that we need your word. Lord, if we're left up to our own devices and left up to the world, we will find ourselves in great trouble. So God, we look to you and to the truth of your word. And we ask that you would pour your truth into us. That you would use it to wash us from all the lies. Oh God, that we might be a people who live our lives worthy of your gospel that live as though we reflect Christ. Jesus, we ask that you would work this within us and that you would use your word and that you would use these songs and that you would use our fellowship and our prayers, God, to create us into your image. 
that we might be conformed to your image. God, that we might find true joy in this life that cannot be shaken by sickness or by poverty, that nothing would be able to shake our Redeemer's love for us. May it be true in our lives. And we ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's look at this first description given in verse 25. Join me in verse 25 for just a moment. I have found it necessary, or I have thought it necessary, to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. He starts by saying, I have thought that this is necessary. He's found this activity to be necessary. So who is this that he's sending? Who is Epaphroditus? Epaphroditus had been through a lot. He himself was a Philippian. He had come to Paul on behalf of the church. In chapter 4, he even mentions that it was Epaphroditus that had carried from Philippi to where he was the financial gift that the church had taken up to give to Paul that he might be sustained through this imprisonment. And the Philippians loved Paul, and they were concerned for him. And they also loved Epaphroditus, we'll see, because he was one of their own. And they loved him, and they were concerned for him as well. And because of this, Paul thought that it was necessary that he send Epaphroditus back to them. And we'll see why in just a few moments. But note the things that Paul uses to describe him from the outset. He says, Epaphroditus is my, look, brother, my companion, my fellow soldier, messenger, minister. Now, unless we're familiar with Paul's story, this, is, this doesn't impact us very much. But when we understand and we remember, Paul used to be Saul. And who Saul was. And he's going to tell us a little bit more in, in Philippians 3 about what that looked like in his life. I mean, if anybody, he says, if anybody had cause for boasting, it was me. Because I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a, a Benjaminite. And not only that, but I was a Pharisee. And, and, and not just some, you know, run-of-the-mill Pharisee. I was like a Pharisee of Pharisees. And when we think about who the Pharisees were, the fact that now he is looking upon a man named Epaphroditus, a man whose name is favored by Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love. The, the remark here should floor us at the power of the gospel to change someone's life. Because he would have considered Epaphroditus a Gentile dog, not worth his time, not worth his love, not worth his effort. But no longer is that the case. But because of the power of God's gospel, Christ's manifesting presence in their lives, he can look upon this one who is named favored by Aphrodite and say, brother, brother. In fact, the, the language is from the same womb. That's how deep it goes. I love the remark of one commentator that he makes on this. He says, in the, the custom in those days was to throw dice and shout, Epaphroditus! Or favored by Aphrodite. Our Epaphroditus, he says, was sort of a gambler himself. He risked his life for the sake of the gospel. What what. What a remarkable change. 
Instead, we could say, no, his, his name is probably um, favored by God, the one true God, because he has mercifully saved him. Now Paul, this ex-Pharisee, humbly puts himself on the same level as this servant and messenger that's come from Philippi with this Greek pagan name. These brothers in the household of faith also worked together. They worked together. They labored together. They linked arms. They were, they were yoked together. And this isn't something that's just like when we think of co-worker, we think of that person that when we're walking through the office, we just give them that nod. You know, and that's about all the, do you know uh, James down in accounting? Yeah, I know James down in accounting. I give him one of these every morning when I come in. And he writes my checks, so I got to have him. That's not what this co-worker is about. No, co-laborer, this soul-level labor that's like unlike any other, and I'm afraid that we just don't get it. We just don't get it the way that we should because the contemporary Western church has become quite lethargic in its prosperity and its laziness that there's very little culture shaping that goes on through the furtherance of the true gospel and the true kingdom. Work, work, that's what it is, for the gospel and for the sake of God, and that's why I think we don't understand the gravity of a term like co-laborer or co-worker in the faith. Because we don't labor and we don't work more oftentimes than not, we want to get our needs met and fed and live comfortably with a little salve on our mind. Hey, I did my duty. I went to church. And that's what Christianity has become. I'm Loose quotes, Christianity has become in our day. But we need to be a people who think and think clearly about Scripture. We need to be a people who take serious this fundamental doctrine. And the only way that we're going to know what these fundamental doctrines are is if we work, and the work starts here. I, it, it's work for me to get in the Word, to be consistent in the Word, just as it is, I'm sure, you. That's where the work starts, though. And I would, I would encourage you to do it. Start Start today, start this week, decide my work is going to be the word. Now, I'm not a pastor, I'm not a preacher, but I know what's most important in my life, and it starts right here. That's what I would encourage you to do. We need to be a people as a church that aren't struggling to say, where are all the men? Where are all the men of God? but instead struggling to decide which one of these many men is being called out to lead us. We don't need to be wondering where all the faithful women are. Where are all the faithful women? But instead going, what do we do with all these faithful women? How are they to serve? Oh, that we might have a renewed vigor to be more concerned about building God's kingdom and not our own. Our own little kingdoms that are going to pass away with us when we pass away. But instead give ourselves to an eternal kingdom that does not pass away. That might be like trusting in the Lord the way that Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus have. He calls Epaphroditus his fellow soldier. 
You know, fellow soldier could be a label given to the two prior descriptions that have come before, brother and worker, because these guys did battle together. How did they do battle together? In an Ephesians 6.12 type of way. Ephesians 6.12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of the of evil in the heavenly places. And how did they do that? Well, they armored themselves with the armor of God that we see there as well, but they did so with prayer. And they did so with God's word. And they did so with singing and song. They did battle against the enemy in that way. That's the way they trained themselves. They trained their fingers for battle. We are training for battle in this place. But if this is the only place you're training for battle, you're going to lose on Thursday. You have to train yourself. Allow the Lord to train you in his word. He was also a messenger and a minister, it says. This word comes from the Greek word liturgy. And it means that Paul is explaining that Paphroditus cared for him. Cared for him in a way that fed his spirit. He had served the church. He had served Paul. And what we're finding out is that he did so with all of his heart. He ventured all for God. What a description we've been given of him. And now we see the reason that Paul has decided to send him back. He sends him back to Philippi and he just gives us a glimpse into it. And he gives us a glimpse into what it means to suffer well for the sake of Christ. And in this sense, to suffer well when things don't go well for us physically to suffer well through sickness, even. Look at the next clause. He says, For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Oh, man. Well, what does this mean? Well, the statement begins not really with physical sickness, but, it, it, but a homesickness. He says, He's been longing for you in distress because he heard that you heard that he was sick and he didn't want you to worry anymore. Somebody might look at it and go, why is he being such a baby? He's not being a baby. But it says he was not being a baby for his own sake. The reason why he felt the way that he did wasn't for his own selfishness, but because he cared about others more than he cared about himself for the sake of the flock. He had learned that the church had heard of his illness. He was close to death. It caused them a lot of stress to know that their brother was there. But in humility, he didn't want those things to happen. He didn't, he didn't want sympathy. And he didn't want to keep his illness from them in pride. Well, why do you say that? The text doesn't say that. Well, if he did, we wouldn't be talking about this. Paul wouldn't have brought it up. He would have been like, Epaphroditus, that guy, don't act like that guy who in his pride wanted a lot of stuff from the church when he was sick. No, that's, that, that's not what we read here. No, he was truly concerned for their state of mind. Paul, being the man that he was, thought it best to share that with the Philippians. And why did he do that? So that they would go, oh, wow, Epaphroditus, well, kind of. <laughs> that they might honor him and give him the respect that, that he was due because of, their great, because of his great love for them. So how serious was he really? Let's keep reading. Verse 27. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. 
But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should suffer sorrow upon sorrow. Paphroditus was so sick that he nearly died. Why didn't he die? Why didn't he die? Paul explains right here why he didn't die. God had mercy on him. Because of God's great mercy on him, and not only his mercy on him, but his mercy on me, he says. Because if he had died, I would have been truly distraught. But notice that it says, notice what it says, notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say anything about Paul exercising his gift of supernatural healing, does it? And yet we know in Acts, Paul Paul has that gift. Paul has that gift, but it doesn't say anything of him using that gift. It doesn't say anything about Epaphroditus exercising the faith necessary in order for him to be healed, and it happened. No, right now we're seeing set in its proper context what healing is to be about. God's own prerogative. God is the one that heals And we do not manipulate that. It says the prerogative of healing relies solely on God's mercy. God had mercy on him. And God had mercy on me. And so that's why I think it's it's good for right now, just for a moment, us to take a step back and look at this and to see how this conflicts with what we see so often preached from our TV screens about healing. Before we retire from these passages, we have to look at it because there's so much errant theology out there these days about the gifts of the Spirit and particularly the gift of healing. It's a good idea to address it because it comes up right here. Now, Mindsets in regards to faith healing, they vary tremendously. I know that. But most people that are a part of that movement find themselves disenchanted and disheartened by it all. I would suggest for you a documentary um, that you can find easily, American Gospel, that has just come out. And it tackles for two, uh, two hours, it tackles this health, wealth, prosperity gospel, and it gives the true gospel. And it might be something that you want to buy copies of and give to people who you know that are, are deep within that. But I would say go look it up. Uh, maybe we'll even make it work to where we have a viewing party here for that because it is such a good resource. But we'll, I'll, I'll let you know how that goes. But... In all of this, in this this errant theology on healing, there are so many that are trying to understand how our faith and how what we see in Scripture coincides with what we experience now in our day-to-day. And that's all right, but if we go beyond what Scripture has spoken or we go with our own interpretation, we're going to find ourselves at a dead-end road. And we see it all over the place. There was one famous word faith preacher named Oral Roberts, he built a hospital at one time. And what it was supposed to do is it was supposed to blend faith healing and medical practices together. But needless to say, you're not going to be able to check in today 
because it no longer exists. With the risk of tremendous monetary loss, it was obvious, in his own words, God was telling me to shut it down. Yeah. But if there were truly people this day with the gift, supernatural gift of healing, and God was involved with it, we would see greater things happening than the gimmicks and the hoaxes that have been exposed around this lifestyle for years. We would see more. If it was authentic, there would be no need for gimmicks. But alas, all it takes is turning on Christian television or Christian radio and hearing about if you'll sow your seed, you'll receive a green prayer handkerchief, just like the one that Paul used in his day, and it will heal you. Or going to a crusade, spending the money to go to a crusade to have someone blow in your face or knock you down. Or if you have stomach cancer, possibly kick you in the stomach. That happens and has happened. See, apart from this, we also have these televangelists deceiving people into to giving their money, sowing their seed into their quote-unquote quote ministry for this bogus healing. Often the refrain from these charlatans, and they are charlatans, is... I don't heal, the Holy Spirit does. Well, why would they say that? Because when that person is not healed, they can then blame God and not themselves. Well, or say, you didn't have enough faith. It's on you. It's not on me. It places the onus completely on the person who doesn't have enough faith or God and not the mic'd up sociopath. And that's what they are. Now, let's not forget Two, pagans all over the world make similar claims. Witch doctors, shamans, psychic healers, you name it, they claim that they have these powers to heal. But they're a mirage. Satan himself comes, says Satan is a deceiver and he will deceive by making himself look as though he's an angel of light when he is not. Now, Here's the thing. I know that was probably like, whoa, what? <laughs> the common denominator in all of this, and, and we need to be sensitive here, and I am sensitive here, is this. Our need. Our need. We are a needy people. We live in a fallen, sinful world, and because of our fallen sinfulness, we find ourselves in desperate need. And in one of those ways, it's health. We, we get old, our health fails, and we die. Everyone in history, save Enoch and Elijah, have tasted death. Even our author and finisher of our faith, praise God, Jesus, tastes death. But he's conquered death through his resurrection. And that is our greatest need. Because the problem with the health, wealth, prosperity gospel is that it's not a gospel. It is a message. And it is a damning message. Because it is not based upon come to Christ and live. 
Come to Christ and have eternal life. Come to Christ and have your sins forgiven. But instead, it's come to Christ and get your own heart's desires. Get what you've always wanted. Get that fill-in-the-blank. Get that number on a check. Get that uh, description on a health chart, if you will. But that is not what God promises. God promises himself. And he is enough. But for those that fall into this damning message are really just showing that they're feeding their own idolatrous nature. Their nature has not been changed because there's no true gospel there to change their nature. We're serving ourselves when we buy into this garbage. So what is all this rant about, Pastor? (laughs) I hope you're seeing it because... You might be going, what is all this rant about? Can't we just get to the question at hand here that I have that plagues me? Does God heal today? I want to know, does God heal today? Absolutely. Yes and amen. God heals today. Did he heal then? Yeah. We just found out. He healed Epaphroditus. Praise God. Does he heal today? Absolutely. He heals today, but we have to be sober-minded and watchful because the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, and this is the way that he does, one of the main ways that he does. Now, God is the only true being that is free. We have to understand that. One of the attributes of God that is an incommunicable attribute is freedom. Completely free, able to do whatever he so desires unless he bounds himself to his own free word not to do it. So, knowing that as a central attribute of who God is, we know God does whatever he pleases with whomever he pleases in heaven and on earth and seas and all deeps. God heals. He does so in natural ways, in medicinal ways, and he does so in supernatural ways. And he, he, if he ever intervenes in a miraculous way, here's what we know. He does so through the power of prayer. James 5 talks about it. The power of prayer is what God uses to heal a person. If he does so in a supernatural way. And and we do not manipulate God. We just bring our petitions before him and we cry out to him that he would do it and his will be done. Because there are times that God doesn't heal. And we have to be okay with knowing it is his prerogative and it is to his glory. It's to his glory ultimately. This special gift of healing we see in Scripture, we have to understand as well by a good hermeneutic, it was one that was for the apostolic era. And that ended with the death of the last apostle in Scripture. There are no modern-day apostles the way that there were apostles in the New Testament. There are none. Because, in fact, one of the ways in which you had to meet that criteria 
was that you saw physically Jesus. No one has done that this day. But I think it's important to note, as MacArthur would state, he says, when Christ and the apostles healed, they did so in six noteworthy ways. These are the six ways. We saw these affirmed last year in our study in the miracles of the book of John, and we can attest to these through Acts as well. First, they would heal with a word or a touch. They would heal with a word or a touch, not any other uh, gimmick. They healed instantly. It was instant, except for the time that Christ wanted to uh, teach his own disciples a lesson about what was going on in their lives by healing a man partially, that he might see people as he sees trees, and then heal them fully to explain to them that the Holy Spirit peels away and, and gives them salvation in that way. Three, they healed totally, totally. There wasn't, I felt like I was healed, and then later I had to get medical help. No, they healed totally. Four, they were able to heal anyone fully. Jesus didn't have a microphone in his ear knowing what the infirmity was. He didn't play camera tricks. He healed fully, and he did it for anyone. Five, they healed organic diseases. No, no matter the infirmity or the malady, all healings were undeniably miraculous because he truly healed something. Six, these men raised the dead. And that's always the mark of a true faith healer, they say. There was someone in South Africa, I believe, that uh, put on a big show and had someone uh, elevate himself out of a coffin, and there was a big deal, and then before too long, everybody's going, no, this does not happen. But there's still rumors floating around out there about how it does, but it doesn't. As far as the gift of healing is concerned, we have to understand it, that God used signs and wonders and miracles throughout Scripture in order to validate the message of the gospel, to, to validate the message of those who were going out that he sent in this time frame. Jesus did miracles, and what did they do? They validated the fact that he was God in the flesh. And then Paul and the apostles did miracles, and what would they do? Uh, they would say, "This you're seeing this not because we're some sort of great faith healer, now go buy us a jet, but Christ in us, this is about Christ. Put your hope and your faith in him. And repent of your sin was the message that we don't hear in this present day coming from mouths of faith healers. No, but that's what we see in Scripture. Paul, he had this history of healing people, even resuscitating individuals like Eutychus. But now getting back to Epaphroditus, Philippians 2, 25-27, the mystery may be well, then why didn't Paul just heal him? Paul can heal supernaturally. He can give life where there was death, like in the case of Eutychus. Why didn't he just heal him? We don't know. Perhaps, 
the gift had ceased from operation at this point. Or maybe he thought that he would have wielded it selfishly. We don't know. All we know is that there's no record of Paul miraculously healing him. And this isn't the only place in Scripture that we have this head-scratcher. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 20. We're told of another man where, where Paul has to leave his good friend Trophimus sick in Miletus. Paul, why didn't you just lay your hands on him and heal him? Well, we don't know. But what we do know is that it didn't happen. One commentator remarks this about this tension that we find here, and I think it's good for us to understand. Either way, healing Epaphroditus was beyond the purpose of the gift of healing. The gift was not given to keep Christians healthy. It was given to be a sign to unbelievers to convince them that the gospel was divine truth. Healing was a miraculous sign gift to be used for skeptical, uh, special purposes. It was not intended as a permanent way to keep the Christian community in perfect health. That was the gift, and that's why it was given. So again, God certainly heals today. But whether he does or he doesn't is according to his own free will. And everyone that's honest has to agree to this truth. I've had people explain to me experiences that they've had with their own healings. People that possibly, I've had people that say, I went to an event and this took place. Or in some way that they were healed miraculously. And you know the way I respond to that? Praise God. Praise God that you were healed. If it's a true healing, praise God that you were healed. However, we cannot see that healing as the result of one's own faith or a person on a stage. We have to see it as a way in which God is glorifying himself and his own prerogative to heal someone by his own power as he decides to answer the prayer of a desperate heart, Lord, heal me. That's where it comes down. That's where the rubber meets the road. So what do we do? What do we do with all this going on in Scripture and going on around us? Living in a fallen world, we fall ill. We get sick. We know others that fall ill and get sick and sometimes die. We know this is a part of life. What should we do? Pray, 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 and know that God has, God has the ability to say yes or no, and whatever he decides, blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives and he takes away. Blessed be his name. Pray that the Lord heal you. Pray that the Lord heal others. And do so resting in his sovereign will and knowing that in the end, you can take a step back in the sobriety of mind and say, whatever my God ordains is right. 
His knowledge is far superior to mine. His ways are above my ways. I'm going to trust him, whatever he decides. Final verses say this. I am the more eager. This is verse 28. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. The, Paul, the, the, the charge that Paul is giving the Philippians in this last section is not just honor such men, but I want you to notice there's repetition here. Joy, rejoicing, giving glory to the Lord. Rejoice, rejoice in God. And in rejoice in those who love you and serve you. That he is raised up to do that. And honor those people who have risked their lives for the sake of the gospel. We do not elevate them more than we elevate Christ and his message. That is the opposite of what those people would have us to do, even. But let's contemplate for just a moment. Contemplate for just a moment. At the close, as we close, what is it, and this is a question for you that I want you to pose to your own heart and mind, what is it in my own life right now that I consider more important than venturing all for Christ? What is it in my life right now that I, in the sobriety of mind, look at these things and think This is what keeps me from stepping out in faith to venture all for Christ. To live a a life truly worthy of the gospel. What is it that keeps us from being like Christ and proclaiming the message of Christ like Epaphroditus did, almost dying in its service? I think first is this, we have to truly believe the gospel. We have to start there. I mean, what is this that we have, we have um, crucified ourselves to? Because that's what salvation is. It's saying, I have died with Christ, and I no longer live, but he lives through me. And my little kingdom We're going to see Paul say in the next chapter, it's dung. I gave it up. I gave up all the things that I boasted in. I considered them rubbish that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but a righteousness that only comes from Christ. And I ventured all that I might somehow be able to experience it and then obtain resurrection from the dead. Oh, how I pray that that would be my my heart, how I pray that that might be your heart, that we might value our relationship with Christ more than our bank account, more than our status, more than our GPA, more than the size of our home. And remember that if it were not for Christ, I would still be lost and without hope. We have to understand the gospel and believe the gospel. And we'll get to that. But two, I think what keeps us from venturing all for Christ is ourselves. 
comfort and security. Comfort and security in this life and serving our own idolatrous selves. And quite honestly, I don't think I need to elaborate there because we know if we're honest. So let us this day repent and believe. And what are we to believe? We're to believe this. From the moment we were able to draw breath, we were sinful by nature. Sinful by nature, selfish by nature, wanting only what is good, what we consider good for us. And in so doing, we go our own way. We don't do what God has told us to do. Instead, we do whatever is right in our own eyes. And there is a way that seems right to man, but in the end leads to death and death for all men. In our trespasses and sins, we've seen over the last couple of weeks why we're so desperate for grace, because we're dead in trespasses and sins. There is no spiritual life within us. But God sent His only Son. And as God clothes Himself in the flesh, He lives a perfect life. He does all the things to the glory of God, and He does all things right and all things good. And then, all the sins that we had committed were imputed upon him, the innocent one. And he went to the cross to extinguish God's wrath and anger towards our sin and rebellion. That we, by faith in Jesus and in his life and in his death, might be made right with God. And able to have a heart that changes and says, no longer for me, God but all for you. And if that is not the refrain of your heart, I would say search your hearts this morning to see if you be in the faith. And for those of you who desperately desire to, to give God glory, all glory with your life, I would encourage you, venture all for Him. Pray. Be in His Word. Say, God, I plan my way, but you would establish my steps. I am yours. Do with me what you will.